praise you now that you are the God who does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor are you served by man as though you needed anything. For you yourself give to all life and breath and all things. You give and you give and you give, and you have promised to never stop giving so that all of our needs are abundantly met for your great glory and for our supply so that the glorification of your son through our ministry, whether at work or in cross-cultural ministries or wherever would bring great honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, even, even at the ultimate price of your people if necessary. And so, Father, we praise you and we give you thanks that we get, a, get to be a part of what you are doing in building your church and being the recipients of all that you have promised for us in Jesus. Help us, Father, to be faithful and help us to learn from faithful men like George Mueller to trust you with everything and to find in you everything that we need and everything our hearts long for. May we not say, all we have is Christ. May we rather say, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. For he is all that we need. And so we give you praise and thanksgiving now for this time. And pray, Father, that you would bless it for your glory and for the edification of your people. Change us, make us more like Christ, we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It is safe to trust only in the living God. It is safe to trust only in the living God. It is safe to trust only in the living God. This was the message and life example of George Mueller. George Mueller was a German believer who invested his entire adult life ministering in the town of Bristol, England. He co-pastored two churches and at the age of 28 founded a ministry called the Scripture Knowledge Institute for Home and Abroad. Dedicated to evangelism, Bible and track distribution, supporting missionaries of which their churches sent many. Establishing and supporting Christian schools for the education of children. And from this platform, he also engaged in the ministry which he is best known for in history and globally around the world. That of his ministry to orphan children who both parents were deceased. Ministering to them in the homes that he built for them. He built five large orphan houses which cared for 10,024 orphans in his years of ministry. 10,024, very precise number, which is indicative of everything Mueller did. He kept track of everything so that there would be no ambiguity about what God was doing in fulfillment of his promise to provide all that we need according to his riches and glory. Establishing this orphan ministry in these homes by itself was an accomplishment worthy of note, and it would be for anyone who had accomplished such a ministry. But the truly amazing thing is that George Mueller had no money, and he was resolved never to ask for money 
to support any part of his ministry, not even from his church, of which he was the full-time pastor and co-pastor of two churches. His dear friend and brother in Christ, uh, a man by the name of, he calls Mr. Crank, was kind of his co-pastor. And between the two of them, they pastored these two churches, which I'll reference a little more later. He relied on God alone, trusting solely in his promises and engaging in what he called believing prayer, fully expecting that God would adequately supply all that God intended to accomplish through him. Now, when he turned 70, not 17, but 70, he handed the reins of the orphan ministry over to someone else and became a traveling missionary. He entered the mission field in earnest, uh, I would say again, because um, remember, this is a German man. If he's in England, it's because he left Germany to enter into cross-cultural ministries, had to learn the language, but he left even that mission field for a new ministry at the age of 70, ministering in 42 countries, by one estimate preaching an average of once per day, addressing in the neighborhood of 3 million people in his 70s with his message of the promise-keeping, prayer-answering God. This he did for 17 years until he was 87 years old. At 87, he didn't stop ministry. He just went home and began preaching in his church again and leading Wednesday night prayer meeting. On Wednesday evening, March 9th, 1898. He led his final prayer meeting at his church. The following morning when his tea was brought to his door, he failed to answer the knock at the door. A member of the ministry went into his bedroom and found him lying dead on the floor. He was 92 years old and used every breath he had to proclaim the excellencies of the glorious God whom he served. The life of George Mueller has inspired young men and women and old men and women over the last century to accomplish great things for God by simply ministering the word of God and engaging in believing prayer. One prominent example of this life was a missionary that, with which you are all familiar with. I hope, I think I preached on him this time last year, Hudson Taylor, who was born in England when Mueller was 27 years old and went on to become the great missionary to China who depended on no man but God alone through the ministry of the word and believing prayer to to meet all of his material needs and for all of the material needs for the expansive ministry that he established, the China Inland Mission, which is now called uh, something else. Um, but is still in existence today. They got run out of China, as all missionaries did, and so fine, he just renamed the ministry and became a global ministry to ministering to the nations the glory of Christ. But he followed the example of this man who became his mentor from a distance, George Mueller. Now, what I want to do from here, now that we've seen some of the accomplishments of this man uh, by God's grace. I want to talk briefly about, first of all, about his biography, starting from the beginning where he began, because there's some, some important notes to, to, uh, um, to see as we think about his early years and what God did in his life in bringing him to faith in Christ. 
And then I'd like for us to spend some time looking at the biblical foundations of uh, why Mueller lived, chose to live the way he did. Here are some of his thoughts about why he made the decision to do ministry the way he did ministry, and then to come back and draw some final application for our benefit uh, from his life and from the scriptures that he lived in obedience to. Now, as I said, Mueller was a German. He was a Prussian. He grew up in Germany. He didn't have a Christian upbringing. In fact, in his early years, there was nothing in his life that would have led anyone to believe, least of all himself, that Mueller knew anything about God because he didn't. His father was a wealthy tax collector in Germany who decided that the best way he could train his children, his boys in particular, was to give them as much money as they wanted and hope that they learned how to save it and invest it and use it for good and become responsible citizens. As you can probably imagine, if you're coming from a biblical perspective on parenting, this had the opposite effect. Instead of turning the boys into responsible citizens, it had the effect of turning them into profligate reprobates of the worst kind. By age 10, George was already known as a habitual thief and expert in cheating, lying, stealing, whatever. In his teen years, Mueller began engaging in gross immorality, drinking. One night, unbeknownst to him, his mother fell ill. It would be terminal and it would be fast. She would be dead before sunrise, but he wasn't home. He knew nothing of her illness He would write later in his journal entries, he would confess that on that same night, he was out with his friends, partying till morning, drinking and engaging in all kinds of immorality while his mother died. When he was 16 years old, he used some of his father's money to travel to various hotels. Um, Didn't want to go home, so he just traveled from place to place. He ran out of money, and he built a certain... um, hotel owner of the fee that he was due and tried to go to the next hotel at which he was greeted by the police and promptly arrested and taken to jail. But he had no money to bail himself out. He had no money to pay the the hotel owner back and he couldn't get in touch with his father. No telephones in this time. When his father heard about it, Mueller had already spent 20, 29 Um, 24 days in jail. His father learned about it and sent money to pay for his fines and to pay for uh, legal costs and what he owed the hotel. His father sent a carriage or went personally to get him and took him home and beat him severely for his irresponsible behavior. And Mueller, in that moment, decided, I got to change. I just can't live like this anymore. This is a disaster. I can't go on drinking anymore. I can't go on partying and engaging in immorality anymore. He was a teenager, but he was deep. He was in deep, serious life-dominating sins. And so what did the father do? His father thought the good thing to do would be to send George to seminary. To learn to be a preacher. Oh my goodness, if, if you haven't read much of church history, you just cannot imagine how many preachers or how many young men went to school to learn to preach and learn to do ministry. Even today, how often this happens, um, young men who don't even know God don't have any idea what it means to have a relationship with God. 
In fact, Mueller said he went to the uh, university at Halle, looks like Hale, H-A-L-L-E, Halle in Germany, and he said of the 900 divinity students, now when you think divinity, think theology. They were, they were all students of the ministry. Of the 900 who were there attending school, preparing for the ministry, he said he, he only knew, probably guessed in part, that there were only seven students in that 900 who feared God. The rest were lost. And so he goes off to seminary and he decides now that his life has been made a mess of, but now he's going to seminary to do something about his future, he entered into the ministry and vowed that he would clean up his life, which he did for a little while. But no matter how hard he tried, he simply could not break the chains of sin that held him. It was impossible. And so it was with the people who were baptized this morning. The story is all the same. We all have the same story. Held in shackles of sin until one day, God. One day, he gathered a few of his friends together and planned a holiday in the Swiss Alps. Again, they're living in Germany. They had no money for passports, so they forged letters for each other from their parents and pawned their books which enabled them to have the money to spend 43 days on foot partying through the mountains of Switzerland. And then when they came back, and everyone wondered where they had been, it caused them, especially Mueller, to form a new chain of complex lies that he invented to explain the long absence from his father and away from his school. One of the friends that he had who accompanied him on that long trip was a, a, a young man by the name of Betta. Betta went to school with him, and Betta was a backslidden believer who was trying to get as far away from God as he possibly could in hopes to shake off this Christianity, even while he's studying to be a minister. And sin, sin is a bizarre, insane thing. But um, Betta apparently had repented, and Mueller didn't know about it. But one day, he bumped into Betta, perhaps at the school, and Betta told him about his change of heart and even told him, uh, I think almost in, in a way of trying to shake Mueller off. You know, just get away from me. You're bad for me. Your friendship is bad for me. And he told him, listen, you know, what are you doing this week? Oh, well, um, you know, I'm studying Saturday night. I'm, I'm going to this home of a Mr. Wagner where Christians meet uh, for worship and fellowship together. And much to his astonishment, George said, can I tag along? And you got to be thinking, Betta is thinking, you're going to hate it. You're not going to want to come to this. You are absolutely going to hate it. Try to discourage him from coming. How's that for church growth strategy, right? <laughs> Try to discourage him from coming, and Mueller wouldn't have it. He decided he was going to go, and so he did. That Saturday evening in Wagner's home, would turn out to be the major turning point in Mueller's life. Really wasn't much to the meeting that night. Very few people, a group, simply sat down together around a table. They sang a hymn. They read a chapter from Scripture. You dads, you listening to this? Your family worship doesn't have to be fancy and complicated. They sang a hymn, they read a chapter from the Bible, and then because it was illegal to expound from the Word of God directly, um, 
they read a sermon. That's why pastors back then wrote their sermons and had them published so people could actually read them. And so they read a sermon, and then at the end of the evening, a man kneeled down to pray. It's a poor man, illiterate man. Mueller had never seen anyone kneel to pray. He was duly impressed. And as the man prayed, Mueller, who by now was a budding scholar, inwardly said to himself this, quoted from his journal. I thought to myself, I am much more learned than this illiterate man, but I could not pray as well as he. That's all we know about that meeting. Except something happened to Mueller that night. He says, a strange joy came upon my soul, unlike anything I had ever experienced. In fact, on the way home with his friend Betta, he said to Betta, this again from his journal, he said to Betta, all all we have seen on our journey to Switzerland and all our formal pl- former pleasures are as nothing in comparison with this evening. It was November 1825. Mueller was 20 years old and had just inexplicably become a radically changed man. He would write in later years, he would write in his journal as he reflected on this, I know not whether I went home and bowed before God in repentance. I don't remember. All I remember is that God changed me. And from that moment on, he turned from his sin, never to return. As it turns out, Mueller was a brilliant mind. He threw himself into his studies. He learned Latin and Greek. Beyond that, remember, he was German. So when he went to England, he had to learn English. And then he believed, as he was learning English and uh, meditating on the Word of God, learning theology as best as he could learn it at Hale, he began to feel that God was calling him to take the gospel to the Jews. And so he mastered Hebrew. I wish I could do that. Along the way, he determined that if God, if God really is who he says he is, then he can be trusted for all of my needs. I need not depend on anyone God would not have me depend upon for my material support. And so his father was his benefactor. His father was the one who was paying all of his bills to go to school. And so he goes to his father and very graciously says, now as a new man, um, I can no longer accept your financial gifts. And so from that moment, he was penniless. And that was a problem because he was still in school and he had a long way to go. He had no way to pay for his education. And so what do you do? In his mind, it was perfectly sensible. All he had to do was pray. If God is who God has revealed himself to be, if he wants me to go to school and become something for him in terms of my ability to communicate the word of God and live for him, then he will provide. And so he prayed. And shortly after he began praying, three men from America showed up at the school for graduate studies at uh, the University of of Halle, who needed to be tutored in German and a couple other things, and were willing to pay for their services. They were willing to pay well. Mueller was offered the job immediately, and he saw it instantly as God's answer to his simple believing prayers. 
By the way, I love, as I read um, biographies, I love biographies because they're so instructive about how we can apply the commands and the promises of God to our own lives very practically and definitely. And I love to see, as I read biographies, how the lives of other great men and women kind of were, were strung together in this complex, complex web of God's sovereign grace, building his church around the world. And here we see it again, because one of these three men was none other than the great theologian Charles Hodge, who would eventually be, be put on staff at Princeton University and become the great theologian that so many of us have appreciated even to this day. Well, at around the same time, another significant providence happened while he was going to seminary. He had a, um, that had a lasting influence on his life. For nearly two months, he moved into some free lodging, which every seminary and college student would love to have. But it was furnished for poor divinity students in a famous orphan house built by A.H. Frank. 100 years earlier, 100 years earlier, Frank had built these orphan houses without asking for any money. You think, where did, where did Mueller get the idea of starting an orphan ministry and doing it without any money? It didn't just come to him out of the blue. He read biography, and the Lord used it to say, listen, look around you. Look at the need. The need has not changed. There's still orphans. I still need men to carry on this ministry, and maybe you could do it for my great glory, by doing it the way Frank did it. It was seven years before Mueller would find Frank's biography, but when he found it, he devoured it. And it prompted him all the more to follow Frank as Frank had followed Christ. Therein lies the value of Christian biography. Now, there was one other event in Mueller's life, early life as a believer, that none of the biographies tell about. The only place you'll find it is in Mueller's two-volume narrative of the Lord's dealings. Again, he took copious notes. He, he recorded everything because he wanted very specific details of how God answered prayer and moved in his life and led him to do things that were impossible. And so he kept track of everything. And so one of the things he did was he wrote this narrative of the Lord's dealing. There were two volumes to tell about the Lord's work through his life and ministry. Well, what was the thing that all the biographies, even the one I recommend to you this morning that's out here on the table that you can purchase this morning, even that one leaves it out. Even the Westminster, I think it's a Westminster uh, book, the, the big biography of um, George Mueller leaves it out. They all leave out his theology. One day, Mueller became very, very sick, and he was sick for a number of weeks. But at the end of that period, in 1829, he went for recovery to a town called Tingmouth. There in a little chapel called Ebenezer, he learned the truths of the doctrines of grace. For 10 days, Mueller lived in a house there with a nameless gentleman who he said changed his life forever. He writes, Through the instrumentality of this beloved brother in the Lord, bestowed a great blessing upon me for which I shall have cause to thank him throughout eternity. He writes in his journal later, before this period, uh, he's, he's, he's referring, and I left this part out of my notes, he's referring to a period of time, his first four years of ministry. 
when he knew nothing of the doctrines of grace. He knew nothing of God's sovereignty over all men and salvation. And so he's referring to that period of time. And one of his, one of his memories was that that first four years of preaching was so fruitless and barren. But then he got sick. And in the mystery of God's sovereign providence, put him in a place where this brother ministered to him for, for 10 days, a nameless brother who unpacked the scriptures and showed him. But Mueller writes in his journal, before this period, I had been much opposed to the doctrines of election, particular redemption, and final preserving grace, so much so that a few days after my arrival in Tigmouth, I called election a devilish doctrine. I knew nothing about the choice of God's people and did not believe that a child of God, when once made so, was safe forever. But now I was brought to examine these precious truths by the word of God. Such a critical statement for Mueller, because though he was a a man of ministry and action, though he was a man of prayer, he will say in his journals or in his narrative that even though he was a man of prayer, he didn't consider prayer primary. What was primary to him was the reading and studying of God's word. Prayer came from the study of God's word. He studied first to see the glory of God on the pages of scripture, and then he prayed. And that is the appropriate order. And so he was led to embrace the doctrines of grace by studying the scriptures and comparing them to what he had been told from this nameless brother. And so he embraced the doctrines of grace, which John Calvin calls a robust, mission-minded, soul-winning, orphan-loving Calvinism. It's the same Calvinism that was embraced by almost all of the famous missionaries that we know about. Their biographies are in our bookstore. Their theology is left out because every publisher wants both Arminians and Calvinists to buy their books. And so we don't know that guys like William Carey and Adoniram Judson and Hudson Taylor and George Mueller, they were all Calvinists. Spurgeon, Newton, and so many others. And they were evangelistic. They were passionate about the gospel and reaching the nations. And so he writes, he's, he's telling, he's, in, this, in this entry, he's talking about uh, a conversation he had with his students about his failure to produce fruit in his first four years. He says, now in the course of time, I came to England. And it pleased God then to show to me the doctrines of grace in a way in which I had not seen them before. At first, I hated them. If this were true, I could do nothing at all in the conversion of sinners, as, would, uh, as all would depend upon God and the working of his spirit. But when it pleased God to reveal these truths to me from his word, my heart was brought to such a state that I could say, I am not only content to be a hammer, an axe, or a saw in God's hands, but I shall count it an honor to be taken up and used by him in any way. And if sinners are converted through the instrumentality, through my instrumentality, from my inmost soul, I will give him all the glory. Then 
He tells his students, Then the Lord gave me to see fruit in abundance. Sinners were converted by the scores, and ever since God has used me in one way or another in his service. And so the discovering of the all-encompassing sovereignty of God became the foundation of Mueller's confidence in God to provide his needs without asking any man and by engaging in believing prayer. So he gave up his regular salary at the church, told them, no more. Put a little box in the back. The times were different then. Circumstances were different than they are here. And I'll tell you how. This was very common in the uh, 1800s and previous to that. Um, If you belonged to a church, you rented your pew. That's why if you go into a lot of these old churches in Williamsburg and in Philadelphia and other old towns, you'll find nameplates. This this was George Washington's pew. This is Betsy Ross's pew. This is, you know, whoever's pew. why Why don't I have a pew? Where's my pew? Well, you would have a pew if you rented it. And so there, were, there was what was called the pew rents. And that's how they paid their pastor. Everybody paid rent. And those who paid more got better seats. And those who paid less got the back seats. And those who couldn't afford to pay had to stand. And he said, that's a clear violation of what James teaches. And so we're done. If I don't get any money at all, I'll trust God. He put a box in the back and said, listen, if the Lord lays it on your heart to give, that'll be great. I hope the deacons check the box once in a while so I'll have some kind of income. And that's the way he left it. And so he prayed. He refused to ask people directly or indirectly for money. He prayed and published his annual reports about the goodness of God and answers to prayer. And then he simply watched God do what God promised he would do. Now, let's take a few minutes to see if we can wrap our arms around all of this from a biblical perspective. Where was he coming from biblically? How should we view this biblically? All of us need to hear, I think, all of us, all of us wealthy Americans, and if you're in this room and have a place to live, you've got running water, electricity, and a television set, you are wealthy, even if you don't have a television set, which I expect you all do. We are all wealthy people. We desperately need to hear this message as it relates to our needs and God's promise to provide for his people. You see, Mueller believed a biblical truth that all of us know, but very few of us really live. The Apostle Paul said this, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Any ambiguity there? Any words there that are theological or difficult to understand? My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Someone may ask, if that is true, then why do we work? Why do we seek gainful employment? That's a biblical concept, isn't it? Yes, it is. Well, if God is the provider, then why should we do that? And the answer to that, of course, is that we work primarily to bring glory to God where we live. We don't earn, we don't work 
in order to provide for ourselves. God provides. And yes, he provides through our work most of the time, but not all the time. He doesn't need our employer to take care of us. God is not enslaved to our employer. He can provide through our employer, and usually does, or he can provide without an employer if he so chooses. As witnessed not only by the life of George Mueller, who refused to accept a regular salary from his church, but also proved by the testimony of so many of you, a few of you in this body, who have testified that when you lost your job for however many weeks, months, in one case I know years, whether it was from economy, in that brother's life it was because of illness. The testimony was from these very people in Calvary Bible Church who said, my income was greater when I was out of work than it ever was when I was employed. Amazing. I remember one of these brothers, I asked him, so where'd the money come from? And he said, I don't know. It came from everywhere. And people I didn't even know were sending money and checks. And there was such an abundance of God's supply while I was ill that we were able to look around and say, oh God, use us to minister to other people's needs. And did. Amazing. When we begin to grasp this, beloved, we will be loosed from the fears that keep us from giving whatever God requires and going wherever God desires. Until then, we'll be shackled by fear. We simply must learn to trust God to be the source of our living and not our employers. There's a little book a little workbook put out by Marketplace Ministries called Why We Work. It's great. I recommend to everyone who has a job that you work through that little study. And I've got a couple of copies in my office I can pass on to you. Um, In this book, they write, this is a great illustration to to, uh, drive home the point. They write, suppose a pastor said, the reason I do my best The reason I do my best job, the best job I can in my sermon preparation is in hopes that the church board will give me an increase in my salary. I'm a pastor because I need to learn, I need to earn a living like everybody else. And when I have speaking opportunities outside the church, I make my selection as to where to go on the basis of who will pay the highest honorarium. As a matter of fact, I hope to become very well known, even famous, so that I can raise my speaking fee. And you're listening to him and you're going, you got to be kidding. (laughs) You're in the wrong business. And you would be right. Preaching the gospel for filthy lucre. That's wrong. But they continue. In reality, however, all believers are in full-time Christian work. Every one of us. The only difference between pastors and the laity is how their ministry is funded. If it's wrong for the pastor to view his pulpit as a means for earning a living, and it is, it's also wrong for all of God's people, irrespective of their 
vocation. And he's right. And the reason I believe he's right is because the Apostle Paul wrote, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the Philippians. He's not writing to the other apostles. I mean, the apostles bear the brunt of of so much of what we say, oh, it's for the apostles, or it's for the Jews, those poor people. It's for us. God has promised to supply all of our needs. And this isn't the only place in Scripture. It's all over Scripture. Think about Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. Turn there with me. Some of you are yawning and need a little exercise. So turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And and witness Jesus on this point, verse 25. For this reason I say to you, Jesus says, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For, here's the point, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. And so here's what you should do. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. You see the point? Don't seek these things. Seek the glory of God. God will take care of the things. Through employment, most of the time. Without employment, some of the time. But whether employed or unemployed, all the time. All the time. Do you hear the profound simplicity of Jesus' words? These are not difficult You don't need to go to seminary to learn these things, but oh, how slow I am, how slow my heart is to grasp and to delight in these promises in practical obedience. We need to learn this, beloved. If the corporation fails, God will not fail. He is our provider. And the supply that we receive, no matter how little or how much, is given for his glory. Now, this is not to say, and I need to emphasize this, I shouldn't have to, and neither should Paul have had to, but we know historically, both then and today, that there are people who think, okay, then that means I don't have to work. God will just supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. Therefore, I don't have to work. But in order to land there, you have to land on disobedience at some point. 
because you are also commanded to work. In fact, so much so that the Apostle Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if any would not work, neither should he eat. And so we have the command, you must work. Why? To earn a living? No. So that God would be glorified in your life and labor. And God will use your employer to meet your needs financially, yes, to a degree, and when you are no longer able to work for whatever reason and you are faithfully pursuing God, living for God, then his promise is for you. Mueller had a memorable phrase that he reminded himself and wrote about often relative to his biblical work ethic. ethic, Work ethic. Did I say that right? He would often say this. Work with all your might, but trust not in the least in your work. Work with all your might, but trust not in the least in your work. Our hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness, not our employer. Not how much money we have in the bank. God can take that away in an instant. There is not safety in trusting your employer. There is no safety in trusting your bank account. There is no safety in trusting your ability to provide for yourself. But it is safe. It is safe to trust in God alone to provide for your needs. Our hope is in God. He is our provider. Mueller performed the work of several men. This was not a lazy man. He didn't just sit in his office and pray and study scripture and surf the internet. This guy was busy. He did the work of, I don't know, four or five pastors. He had two churches to shepherd with his brother Craig together. They had missionaries to support who were going from his church, plus other missionaries like Hudson Taylor that he um, actively supported financially. Here's this guy who was constantly in need of money to provide for his own ministry, and he was constantly giving money away to other places because his hope was not in any man. He had Bibles and tracts to distribute, Christian schools to staff and support, endless correspondence and record-keeping to perform, not to mention a marriage to maintain twice. And all of that was in addition to the orphan homes. And for all of it, he was resolved to remain absolutely in a state of dependence upon God where he found perfect peace no matter what the circumstance because he believed that God is sovereign that God is perfect in wisdom, he is infinite in love, and he cannot deny himself. Again, I quote from Marketplace. Most conscientious believers, if asked if they believe Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 24 through 34, they would say yes. But if you follow the question, follow with the question, 
then why do you chase the dollar in the marketplace? If they were really honest, they would respond, because I am afraid that if I allow Jesus to determine my standard of living, he will establish it lower than what I want to live. And that's the truth. We don't care most about his kingdom. We care care most about our comfort. And so the reason most of us will do very little of any significance for God in this life is because we're afraid of the risk. We're unwilling to risk losing our comforts. And so in our unbelief, we ask questions like, how will I ever be able to support my family if I leave everything and go for the mission field or into the pastorate? Or if I give money away to help other people or to support those on the mission field, I might put my own wife and children at risk. Oh, that sounds so horrible. And so we accomplish very little because we fear that God's promise might fail. Or we never even think that God has promised. Though we can quote Philippians 4.19 in our sleep. Mueller refused to live like this. In fact, he determined not to live like this for the very purpose of demonstrating to the world that God is trustworthy. As he reflected back on his motivation for building the orphan houses, without asking for man any money, but trusting God and making his needs known to him through believing prayer, he wrote this. Now, again, I said that pretty fast, so let me slow it down. He's now about to tell us why he started the orphan ministry. Okay, thousands of orphans in the streets, not like America, Thousands of orphans in the streets, street urchins, they called them, constantly get in trouble. There were, I think, over 100,000 children in jail in England at the time. Children. It was a big problem. But here is why. In his recounting of why he established the orphan home, he said this, My spirit longed to be the, an instrument in giving the children of God not only instances from the word of God of his willingness and ability to help all those who rely on him, but to show them by proofs that he is the same in our day as he was then. I well 